Hello, I'm Adam Ferner. And I'm Darren Chetty. And welcome to Do You Even Vegan? In this episode, we're going to be talking about Pesach, or Passover, the Jewish festival which I've been celebrating this week, and the value of consistency in ethical eating. To start with a disclaimer, we're not religious experts. As Darren puts it, we are essentially just two people musing about our shared ignorance, but we hope you enjoy our shared ignorance anyway. Shout out, as always, to the NHS, which is just generally amazing. How you doing? I'm I'm very well, yeah. How are you? I'm all right. I'm enjoying some uh, special Pesach matzah for my lunch. Okay. Um, I mean, you've 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 put the word special in front of it, but is there any reason for that? Uh, it's Passover this week, Pesach, mm-hmm. which is when uh, the chosen people. Um, <laughs> Can I say that? I'm going to say that. <laughs> um, Why don't you say uh, when we the chosen people? Just when really... we the chosen people, the Jews, escape from bondage. I have um, chased all of the leavened bread out of my house that I'm now exclusively eating matzah um, for as long as I have any, which is the end of this meal. Okay. And you can have some marge on it, which is what you're doing. I haven't checked the kosher laws, Okay, but okay. I'm having marge on it. I know that it's different for different types of Jews. So you have Ashkenazi Jews who are Jewish people who come from Eastern Europe typically, and then you have Sephardi Jews who come from kind of more of the lower Mediterranean regions like Spain and Portugal. And you also have Mizrahi Jews who are kind of Middle East and North Africa. But Ashkenazi Jews tend not to eat grains or seeds or things. So you'll have like pulses are off the menu for Pesach, rice is off the menu for Pesach. And if you're a vegan, it's not ideal. But I don't think margarine is included. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm eating that and I've got okay. some vegan cheese okay. on top as well. And, and, and in the same way that uh, Christian kids, uh, and I'm doing that comparative thing, so I apologise, but can often remember, you know, if not every Christmas they've ever had, then certainly, uh, you know, their, their, their early ones and the, the sort of magic of that. Do you have the same sort of memories around Pesach? Actually, I, I don't have memories of specific Pesach. They all kind of blend into one because it's, it's such a formulaic celebration and you sit around the table with your family and you read right. the same book every year and everybody tells the same jokes um <laughs> so i don't i don't have specific memories of specific pesachs but i do have a very clear idea of what will happen both kind of like religiously but also um interpersonally right and and there isn't uh, any sort of gift giving there's i guess one of the things that people remember at christmas is oh that's the year i got but where is, mm. it, is it everything is sort of the same because it's, it's ritual? Or are there sort of individual moments that would, would differentiate different years? The one changing factor at the Seder meal that springs immediately to mind is where my dad hides the afikoman. Okay. Right. So this is a game which is normally played uh, with, with young Jewish children. And in our cases, played with old Jewish children. I, you you know, still siblings. do? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we okay. still do. <laughs> And my dad, uh, as the patriarch, will hide half of one of the ceremonial pieces of matzah, uh, which is called the afikoman, and then it's up to the children to go and find it. It is, it is very uh, formulaic and precise as a ritual. You're told where to sit and how to sit, so you always lean to your left to demonstrate freedom, as the Romans would lean to their left on their, on their chaise long or whatever they called them. Okay. Uh, uh, you have to... 
drink a certain number of glasses of wine, you have to leave a glass of wine out for the prophet Elijah, who obviously this year wasn't allowed into our houses because of corona, um, but we still open the door nonetheless. Uh, yeah, you, at the, in the middle of the table, or foregrounded in your Zoom channel, if that's how you're doing it, is the Seder plate, which has mm. different symbolic foodstuffs on, which I think I've mentioned to you in the past. Uh, this year, instead of marrow, which is the kind of horseradish, which is the bitter herbs, yes, yes. which represents the, the bitterness of the um, enslaved Jewish people, I had wasabi, strong. I was um, going to say, that, that stuff can uh, clear the nasal passages. It certainly did. <laughs> And then you, I mean, you have varying bitter herbs. You can also have like chicory and and like lettuce or whatever. Uh, you also have a substance called choroset, which is, uh, I mean, it's it's USP is that it's brown and mushy like cement, uh, right? Yeah, to represent the cement that was used by the Jewish people to build the pyramids. So that, I mean, like throughout all of this is this return to the narrative of Jewish people as formerly enslaved, and then escaping enslavement. You also have carpas, which is uh, parsley, which you use. You don't eat it straight. You dip okay. it in salt water, and the salt water obviously represents tears. Wow. Symbolism heavy, gustatorily pleasant, not at all. Yeah, yeah. And it makes me think of, you know, there's some of those uh, cookery shows where they have to, like, represent a meal that says something about yeah. uh, modern Britain or whatever. And they give you all these sort of explanations, sometimes slightly sort of tortured <laughs> links. But also, I'm always thinking, well, surely, you know, you want the food to taste good. And, and food has, has been symbolic, not just symbolic of this is food, you know, our family or our, our community have eaten for a long time. But this is food that actually re- represents certain things in a narrative is... In, in one way, it's like a really cutting-edge cookery thing. Yeah. And in, in the other, it's it's an ancient tradition. I think if it were enter, if the Seder play were entered into any of these contests, <laughs> it would fail because it is so literal in its symbolism where it's like, oh, we need, we need something that's tears. We'll do salt water. Yeah. We want bitterness. Oh, we'll do bitter herbs. And then you also have a burnt egg. Do, could you hazard a guess as to why there is a burnt egg? Um... No, I couldn't. So obviously, also, simultaneously, there's Easter going on today, in fact, the day of recording. Uh, eggs mm-hmm. figure quite prominently in that, I'm told. Yes, uh, Easter Sundays when uh, children traditionally get their, their chocolate eggs. What's the chocolate egg for? Well, I, I, I wonder, and this is just two people speculating on their shared ignorance, I wonder if uh, it originally was an egg and it, it sort of morphed into a chocolate egg to make it a more pleasant experience. I remember in my primary school we engaged in egg painting in advance of Easter and also egg rolling. You did something to try and make the, the, the shell as, as sturdy as possible mm. and then we went to the, the top of the hill uh, in, in my school in Swansea and rolled, rolled the eggs down and I remember someone... Uh, I thought impeded my egg, and in a fit of rage, I stamped on theirs. <laughs> and I think, I think it was the most trouble I ever got into in school. But I was just so indignant with the injustice of what had occurred. I still have a problem with referees when I play football, but there you go. I, I feel for <laughs> young Darren, but also the poor child whose egg was smashed. Well, yes, in the yeah, fit of that, peak. they weren't at the foremost of my uh, my thoughts at the time. No. So I think, as I understand it, the egg in, in uh, Easter time is supposed to represent new life or kind of the, the, yes, the yes. coming again of new life as it appears on the Seder plate I believe it's supposed to represent mourning okay. 
Okay. And death. Oh, really? And and eggs, I think, are typically the first food that are given to the bereaved at a funeral. Right. Possibly it's because they represent new life yeah. uh, at the funeral, but at the Seder plate, it represents the funeral. So it's a kind of weird transitivity mm, there. Mm. But uh, you're not supposed to eat it. And the other thing that you're not really supposed to eat, but has symbolic status as the kind of uh, a kind of like a sacrificial element is uh, a shank bone the kind of paschal lamb or and i learned this today not necessarily a paschal lamb but if you're vegetarian or vegan you can substitute it with a sweet potato so it's a paschal yam <laughs> it was good isn't it where, where is that tradition uh, come from i'm imagining a place like judas right yeah. But it does identify one of the it does identify one of the things that is quite interesting about engagement by vegans with mm-hmm. religious dietary practices um, is that there is a tension and it's not always so easily gotten around and I think that intersects with some of the things that we've spoken about before and I know that you have an interest in as this and we when we mentioned I think in the first podcast the yeah. conflict between a kind of like cultural connection with food that's really important to preserve. And then also a kind of ethical approach to animal rights. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, is, is there resistance to, to people sort of veganising their, their Seder plate? Not that I've encountered. I mean, uh, but I'm, I'm from a, a kind of liberal, progressive Jewish background. And I highly doubt that in the Haredi community there'll be much kind of veganism or kind of uh, vegetarian alternatives to the Seder ritual. Because I'm interested in, in, in that idea of, as you, as you know, like the cultural continuity tradition, but also the remix, to use the sort of you know, hip-hop language, of, of, of trying to preserve something of the original but adapt it for, for, the, for the present time. And it, it seems to me that's what's been happening. It's not like we're saying that people are saying, oh, we're not bothering with the plate at all, or we're not bothering with the festival. So there's, there's people are retaining their, their Jewishness and, and observance. But there is a remixing going on. I was just wondering whether people are cool with that or whether, because sometimes when people remix, it's like, oh, no, but you've got it wrong. You shouldn't remix some things. They must stay as they always are. You know, they're timeless. In, in many ways, this is actually quite um, central to the character of the Passover meal. I mean, as, as, as represented by the matzahs, the, the matzah is a bread which was made as quickly as possible, so fast that they didn't even have time to let the yeast rise. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, you know, all those hipster sourdough bakers that were very popular at the time were very <laughs> upset, but they just, no yeast, you can't do it, no starter yeah, day. Yeah. So there is, there is something about Passover being uh, a kind of essentially, what's the word that I'm looking for? Well, it sounds like it's a tradition of improvisation. Yes, a, a celebration yeah. of improvisation that then yeah. gets it, that then perhaps gets preserved in a very you know fixed state. I'll um, I'll WhatsApp my rabbi. <laughs> well, yeah, run it, run it by, run it by them. So, um, I, sorry, go on, go on. No, no, I was just going to ask what you're having for your lunch. Well, I had it was it was leftovers from last night, but it was uh, chili rice noodles with some mushrooms, pak choy, and mm. fries, sort of chicken strips. You love Which, your fries. I think fries are, are really good. Uh, I'm not saying they're, they're authentically meat-like. I mean, I, you know, it's 30 years since I've eaten meat. But they're certainly flavoursome and have a nice texture and work well in dishes. So, you know, 
I would I would recommend you you try these chicken strips because they're really easy in a in a stir fry and that sort of thing. And they're a snip of the price, and we're definitely not being endorsed by them. <laughs> oh, yet. if only we were being endorsed. I think we're just too uh, we're too negative about uh, meat substitutes to get endorsements on this. I think we blew it on with quinoa with Andy. I was really hoping for an in in the quinoa industry because <laughs> yeah. all those quinoa bigwigs. Exactly. I was like, they've got they've got money to burn. It's where it's at. Yeah. So I kind of wanted I wanted to delve a little bit deeper into this this thought about the tension. And you've said in the past something really interesting about this notion that when it comes to conversations around ethical eating, there is a huge reliance on consistency a lot of people challenge vegans and vegetarians based on whether or not they're consistent in their application of this ethical principle Mm. i was wondering if you could say a bit more about that well yeah i mean as i said often these conversations happen at sort of things like weddings and it's not that i go to that many but weddings are often when you suddenly come across people from very different walks of life who don't know you and who are trying to spark up conversation and of course you're eating so they'll notice you know i'll get a vegan meal they'll ask about it and if it, it, I mean, it tends to mostly be men who will do this, but there's a kind of, ah, so do you, do you eat honey? Yeah. Uh, do you wear leather? And, and sometimes it's just a natural curiosity, but sometimes it's a kind of, ah, it seems to me that you've tried to put yourself on a higher moral plane than I. Yeah. I want to establish whether you're consistent with that or whether you have actually failed to do so. In which yeah. case, you know, you should recognise that you've lost this conversation. Let me take you off your high horse <laughs> yeah, and down exactly. a peg or two. Exactly. And all I've really done there is just sit there and wait for my meal to, to arrive. But that in itself, of course, is, is, a, is a challenge to, to people's norms. So. Yeah. Do you think that there is some utility in pressing you on those issues? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's definitely utility in thinking about uh, how we live our lives, uh, including veganism and our moral positions. I, I just find it interesting that I guess it's often applied to vegans. There's there's less of, you know, people at these same said weddings talking about, you know, isn't it funny that we're all tucking into lamb and yet lots of us have dogs at home? You know, <laughs> no one's going to just yeah. say that. Because yeah. those those inconsistencies are, are, are so normalised and, are, you know, so widespread. And at the same time, what I'm not saying is necessarily that we should all be consistent and that failure of consistency is itself, you know, a a, a terrible moral uh, lack on our part. I I think it perhaps when we're we're establishing big philosophical frameworks, we're, we're looking for consistency. I think when we're trying to live our lives well, putting consistency there in, at the forefront seems a little bit, uh, if not an error, then a bit a bit weird. Let me put it that way. That if we were to put like care and compassion and concern for others at the forefront, then we'd recognise that we're probably not always exhibiting as much concern for others as we might want to. Sometimes we, you know, we're a bit wound up with ourselves, we've got stuff going on. We're not always as compassionate as we might need to be. We can't extend our compassion always to all beings, but we might try to. Yeah. And as long as we don't sort of beat ourselves up for our shortcomings in doing that, we can sort of, you know, live another day and continue to try and do that. And maybe that's a more useful way of thinking about ourselves than, than to be constantly thinking about the consistency of something. I don't know. I don't. What do you think? What do I think? I think that rule following saves time, actually, sometimes. Yeah. And that's that's one of the reasons why people are as obsessed with consistency, because... You don't want to have to assess every ethical dilemma on the spot. You need to have some principles that you will generally guide you through the world so you're not 
humming and hawing and just generally having a terrible time, like constantly considering what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do. So if you've got rules, then it will... It's not just that they're the right thing to do, it's also that they're functional. Yeah, and I, and I think you can... I guess I think that you can have those general rules, but you can also try and be uh, alive to the moment. Because if, if you're following rules and you've kind of forgotten the basis of those rules, then it, it bec- you become slightly less thinking. Uh, and I think to, to be aware of why you're using rules also means that, you know, th- there may be opportunities for improvisation, for, for remixing. There, there may be times when... Uh, you recognise that you don't meet all those rules. You know, we're, we're, we're deeply implicated in all kinds of oppressive uh, discourses. We live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. We know that our government is investing in all kinds of things that we wish it wasn't. We know that we're, our nation's wealth is built on a legacy of colonialism, that it's not just those artefacts in the British Museum, but it's the wealth that built many of the most beautiful buildings around London that was stolen. So how do, how do we deal with all of that? We can rage against the world or we can try and do what we can, but I guess not become so paralysed by the thought that we're in some ways inconsistent that we sort of cancel ourselves out as, as living beings. I don't know. I, I'm not claiming I've got a, you know, a book in this, in this theory. I just think keeping alive, as I say, these ideas of compassion and care more than consistency, because... The, the 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 wedding example is is the idea of well if I've if I can point out an inconsistency in your veganism I've won, yeah and is that like, well let's think about actually what's a compassionate you know course of action and and whether we can follow it surely that's a yeah. more fruitful line of inquiry not just for for a conversation but for a way of thinking about our lives than than eradicating inconsistencies. That's it, that's our show. You can get in touch with us, or rather with Darren on Twitter. His handle is at Rat Classroom. Send him a message to let him know what you think. The show was presented by Adam Ferner and Darren Chetty. The amazing intro music is by Earthbound Boy. Thank you all for listening.